0: Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you this morning, and uh, yeah, like Pierce said, I feel I, I, like I'm getting old. About a week and a half ago, um, I hurt my knee just getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, literally, I had an MRI on Friday before I came, and I didn't do any, I was just getting out of bed. I was like, I'm not that old, I don't feel that old. But Apparently now Pierce has reminded me that I am that old, because I've been speaking here for a number of years, and students, it's great to see you this morning in church. Uh, thank you for welcoming me and giving me the opportunity to be with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian and part of the resistance movement in Nazi Germany, said this. He said, "Christianity without discipleship is a Christianity without Christ." Christianity without discipleship is a Christianity without Christ. This morning, I want to speak to you for a few minutes about the urgency of discipleship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you meet us right where we are, and that you're not content to leave us as we are, but that you call us and you train us and you send us as missionary disciples. So God, I pray that today your call would echo in our hearts. We love you, in your name, amen. Let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. When's the last time you found yourself deeply frustrated? I'm not talking about you're a little perturbed or a little angry, I'm talking about the kind of frustration where you were so mad, your sight began to blur, you could barely see straight. If you had Purdue in your final four, you know what I'm talking about uh, this week. Um, A couple years ago now, in the middle of the pandemic, pandemic, I had a moment where I had to renew our tags at the DMV. I think you can see where this story is headed. I'm not a kind of person who likes to do normal maintenance things in my life. You know the kinds of things I'm talking about like changing oil, getting tires, things where you're gonna spend a lot of time and money but your life is gonna get no better. I don't like those things. Uh, But every year we gotta renew the tags and we didn't do it on the internet so I had to go and go to the DMV. It was at the height of the pandemic and to be honest with you, normal uh, life here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia and the part of Atlanta that I live in called Snellville, Georgia, Going to the DMV is usually a pretty pleasant experience. You go in, it's 15 minutes in and out, and they do an incredible job. But I'll never forget on this day when I didn't have any time at all, because I'm never making margin in my life for maintenance things, and my wife said, you need to go renew the tags, and I'm like, I don't have time to do it, but I'll just go down there, it'll be easy. We go and we get the emissions tested and then go to the DMV, and when I went to the DMV on this day, all of a sudden, there was a line that was backed out all the way to the highway. I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, it's the height of the pandemic. Maybe people are just too afraid to go inside, and so maybe they're just waiting for the drive through So I go around, and I park in the parking lot, and I go up to the DMV. When I go up to the DMV, there's a woman outside who said, we're not allowing uh, lots of people inside the DMV at this time. So what we're doing is we're asking everyone to go back to their car, and when it's your time, we'll text you, and you can come in. She said, it should only be 15 or 20 minutes. I thought, okay, that's great. That's fantastic. So I went to my car, and 15 minutes goes by and then 30 minutes goes by, and then 45 minutes goes by, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes later, and I am now late to every appointment that I had that day. I finally get the beep and I go in and I'm a little bit frustrated and I I give them my omissions and I I give them our, our bill and I go to pay the bill and when I was going to pay the bill, I pull out my American Express card. And they say, we don't take American Express, sir. I said, that's okay. I've got a Visa check card in my wallet. I'm gonna just pull it out here. And so I pull out my wallet and I'm looking for my Visa check card, but my Visa check card is not in my wallet. And the reason my Visa check card is not in my wallet is because my wife had given the Visa check card from her wallet to my daughter, Emma, who had gone out with some friends. And then my wife had to go to Costco, so she went in my wallet and pulled my Visa check card. And the guy's looking at me like saying, sorry, we can't do anything for you. And I walk out of the DMV. I am not happy. I don't feel like a pastor in this moment. I'm barely Christian. I'm calling my wife, Kim. I'm saying, who takes someone's check card out of their wallet without asking? We're going back and forth. And. So I'm deeply frustrated, just wasted, you know, first half of my day, I got to go get the oil changed in the car, I go get the oil changed to tell me I got a headlight out, but they don't have any headlights to fix it, so then I got to get a headlight, and then I got to go back to the oil change, and I go home, and I get a card, and I go back to the DMV, and I'm thinking, surely these people will have grace and show favor on me, I've been here already, they know this, maybe they'll move me to the front of the line. I go back and they say, uh, sorry, Mr. Rhodes, you're gonna have to wait till the back of the line. Another hour later, I get back in there and I am not happy and I, I you know, throw the stuff down and we get it paid. And I go out to my car and I am so angry. I'm just opening the car door. I'm you know, opening the center console and I've been opening the car door and in the center console all day, but if I open the car door to, and the console to throw my wallet down. And when I see, uh, when I I go to throw my wallet down, I see in the center console my daughter Emma's wallet that had a check card I could have used all day. (laughs) But in my anger and in my anxiety and in my exhaustion, I missed what was right in front of me. I wonder how many times in our anger and our anxiety and our exhaustion we, we miss what 's right in front of us and I think if we do that as as individuals, maybe even more so as churches that especially as a church that is now emerging on the back end of a global pandemic and we're starting to just kind of think, can we get back to where we were? There's this moment that as we emerge that is filled with so much anger and anxiety and exhaustion. And if you and I aren't careful, in our anger and anxiety and exhaustion, we'll miss what's right in front of us. Because we live in a world today where it feels like everybody's angry and everybody's anxious, and everybody's exhausted, and we'll miss the potential that God has placed in front of us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter three this morning, because one of the things that I admire most about Jesus is that he never let his anger, anxiety, or exhaustion keep him from losing his focus. In other words, Jesus is the most secure leader I've ever seen. Oftentimes one of the biggest spiritual disciplines of my life is just to ask myself, what would a secure person do? Because it's amazing how much clarity comes when I just ask myself that question, because too much of my life is ruled in my anxiety and insecurity and anger and exhaustion. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus is facing a, a moment that could have robbed him of that, and yet he makes a decision that is the reason that we're in the room today. But to do that, just to set a little background from The entire book of Mark. Remember, the book of Mark is a a book of immediacy. The gospel of Mark doesn't start with Jesus' birth or his early childhood years. It starts right with his ministry. So right from the beginning, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus bursts on the scene. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he makes this statement. He says, the time has come. And the Greek word that he uses for time is the word kairos or kairos. And in the Greek, there are two words. There's kairos and chronos. Chronos is where we get the idea of chronological time. It's TikTok time. It's one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock time. But when he bursts on the scene, he says, not the TikTok time has come, but the kairos, God's appointed time, God's anointed time, God's sense of timing in the midst of time has come. And then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. And the way we're gonna grab hold of it is through repentance, metanoia, not just feel bad about what you've done, but rather change the way that you think. Have a paradigm shift and believe. Don't don't just give intellectual assent, but step out. And all through Mark one and two, we see Jesus doing this and calling people to this and it's flipping the world of his day upside down. In Mark chapter one, there's a guy who the Bible says has leprosy and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's been seeing Jesus heal and he's thinking maybe it's big enough for me and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he says, if you are willing, you could make me clean. Now, you got to understand, in Jesus' day, if you had leprosy, you were considered unclean. You had to tear your clothes. You had to mess up your hair. Everywhere you went, you had to yell out, unclean, I'm unclean. Literally, there was a six foot circle radius. It's social distancing before we knew about it. That no one could enter in because if they did, they would become unclean. This guy with leprosy throws himself at Jesus' feet and says, If you are willing, You can make me clean. I love this. The Bible says, filled with compassion. The Greek word there is that Jesus sighs. It's like he looks at the man and says, this is not what God intended when we created everything. Filled with compassion, the Bible says, Jesus touched the man. This is a huge moment. Because if Jesus sighed when he saw the man, then when Jesus touched the man, everyone around Jesus gasped. Because here in this moment, Jesus is Challenging the theology of the religious institution of his day because the religious institution of his day has built walls up between clean and unclean things. Their theology is this. If something clean touches something unclean, the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. Did you get that? So, they build walls between clean and unclean things because if something clean touches something unclean, the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. But here Jesus comes redefining normal, challenging the status quo, and this time when the clean thing touches the unclean thing, the unclean thing gets clean. Did you get that? Most of the time in Jesus' day, when something clean touches something unclean, the unclean thing makes the, unclean, makes the clean thing unclean. But not this time. This time, when the clean thing touches the unclean thing, the unclean thing gets clean. And the Pharisees don't, don't like this. And, and honestly, it's challenging us because normally, here's what we think about when we think about following God. We normally think about uh, three different kinds of postures that we can live in. And sometimes when I do with the students, I'll illustrate it. But we got it on the screens this morning, and we'll, we'll take something over here and we'll, we'll, we'll represent the world. So we got it on the screens this morning, and over here, God, and we, we imagine our life between the world and God. And oftentimes, when you imagine your life between the world and God, there's three different postures. The first posture is the posture of faithlessness, where I go over here to the world and I love the world and I turn my back on God. It's a posture of rebellion. And we know that this posture, when I go toward the world and turn my back on God, leads to devastation and destruction and death and despair. Not just because the Bible says it, but because we've lived it. And we know what that posture turns into. And then we talk about a second posture that's kind of caught between God and the world. So you have God on Sunday, but you're back in the world on Monday. you got God on Wednesday, but you're back in the world on Thursday, and you just feel like you're, you're caught, you're stuck, you're torn between God and the world. It's the posture of faltering, double-mindedness, just back and forth. And then oftentimes what we're taught faithfulness looks like, and I want to suggest to you, this isn't true faithfulness, it's kind of a pseudo faithfulness, but what we're taught is that the posture of faithfulness is to turn toward God and to turn our back on the world. So what it means to be faithful is to just kind of get more and more and more of God and get further and further and further away from the world. But I want to suggest to you, Jesus challenges that idea. And the posture of faithfulness that Jesus demonstrates here is maybe we were never meant to be in the middle of this thing. Maybe God was in the middle of this thing. And maybe what true faithfulness looks like is that God is moving toward the world. God's a missional God. He's on movement toward the world, and that what it means to be faithful is that I follow God, and I follow God into the world being his hands and feet so that I can go to any unclean place, I can go to any broken place, and through the hands and feet of God, dare to see it be made clean and made whole again. That's a different kind of faithfulness, and it requires a different kind of disciple. Jesus is breaking down walls in Mark chapter one and Mark chapter two. He's bursting through ceilings. There's a guy who's paralyzed and he can't get in front of Jesus, but thankfully he has four friends and they, they dig a roof because they were trying to get to the front door and it's blocked and they dig a roof. And the guy whose house it is, is looking up and saying, I hope my homeowner's insurance is going to cover this. And they lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, again, this is brusting their paradigms. They don't like it. Who on earth can forgive sins but God himself? And Jesus says, so that you would know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the man and says, take up your mat and go home. You gotta hear the radical nature of Jesus He's breaking down walls, he's bursting through ceilings, he's opening up tables in Mark chapter two, and now the tax collectors and sinners have a place to table that they never had a place to table before. And in Mark chapter three, when Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath day, this is verses one through six, who's got a shriveled right hand, Luke tells us. This is important because In his culture, the right hand was the greeting hand, not to be crass, but the left hand was kind of the toilet hand. And so here's a guy who's never Sabbath day in his life. He's like everywhere he goes, he's not been able to work and he's, he's greeting with the left hand. And the Pharisees have planted him there. Matthew tells us Jesus is in their synagogue. Jesus is playing an away game. And most of the time when Jesus heals people, he does it, in a corner, but this time he calls the guy up in front of everyone, as if to say, I don't want anyone to miss what I'm about to do because Jesus knows the Sabbath isn't just about rest, it's about restoration, and this guy's never Sabbath a day in his life, and so he heals him on the Sabbath day, and when he does it, the Pharisees say, we gotta kill him. The Pharisees in Mark chapter six get together with the Herodians and say, we gotta end this we got to detour Jesus' ministry. But what Jesus does next ensures the future of his ministry. The Pharisees are trying to detour the future of Jesus' ministry. But here in what Jesus does next, verses 13 through 19, Jesus makes a radical decision that ensures the future of his ministry. Listen to it, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boenerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Here's a big thought this morning, church. The future of the church is always in the few. In other words, God and us often see things differently. Because what we try to do in North America today is we try and run church and we hope to get disciples. But what Jesus did is he made disciples and in making disciples, he got the church. So we run church, hope to make disciples. Jesus made disciples, and he got the church. If you make disciples, the church will always emerge. And the future of the church is in the few. In other words, what I'm saying is, Jesus knows the future of his ministry aren't in the crowds that fade, but are in the disciples that are made. Not in the crowds that gather, but in the disciples that scatter. And so here in Mark chapter three, Jesus makes a couple moves that creates a movemental community. Now, when we talk about discipleship, I wanna define it here from Mark chapter three. Here's the way I would define it based on this passage of scripture. Disciples are those who are called out in order to be sent out. He calls them to send them. So disciples are people who are called out in order to be sent out. And in this passage, it feels like almost just like a throwaway passage, but it's so central, literally, it's a pivot moment. The reason you're sitting in this room today is because of what Jesus does as a leader in this moment. He doesn't let anger and anxiety and exhaustion from what the Pharisees are trying to do shut him down. No, he retains his focus and he makes a move that changes everything. So here's the three moves that Jesus makes. The first one is this, Jesus calls them. In the Greek, that word called is a strong word. He elects them, he chooses them. Now, I know as soon as we say that, you know, all kinds of maybe feelings come to your mind because this idea of election. But you got to understand, whenever God chooses people in the Bible, whenever he elects people in the Bible, God never chooses people to the exclusion of the world. He chooses them for the inclusion of the world. In other words, this is what Israel has got wrong. They thought that God was choosing them to the exclusion of the world. They thought that they were just special. Did God say, no, no, no. I didn't choose you to the exclusion of the world, but for the inclusion. In other words, God's heart is always for the world. He wants everyone. But he starts with someone. Abram, my heart is for the world. I choose you, but I choose you so that you will be a blessing to the world. My heart's for everyone. Jesus, his heart is for the world, but he calls 12 to him. This is so different than the way that you and I normally do things. I won't project on you. It's different than the way that I do things, but it challenges the way that I do things because in my world, I try to get to everyone everywhere and don't get anyone anywhere. God always starts with someone somewhere and from someone somewhere can get to everyone everywhere. So I'm trying to get to everyone everywhere and don't get anyone anywhere, but God said, no, no, no. here's what you need to do. Start with someone somewhere. Jesus starts with someone somewhere and from that, 2,000 years later, he's still getting to everyone everywhere. And the call here, for his disciples is to move from the crowd into the community. Maybe you're here today and you've been you know, in the crowd. You, you, you've been visiting and, you, and you're around and you're kind of, you know, you're here but you're on the outskirts of things. Here's the invitation. Move from the crowd to the community today. Don't just stand around. Listen, as he calls you, he's choosing you, he's electing you. always the initiator, but requires our response. Jesus calls them. Number two, not only does he call him, call them, he names them. Did you get this? It was Simon, he says, I'm going to call you Peter. It was just James and John, but he gives them the name sons of thunder. Some scholars would say that what we find here in Mark chapter 3 are are Jesus' nicknames for everybody. Because it's a little bit different. Listen, you you see it other in other words, this this is Jesus, and I love this about Jesus. He calls his disciples not based on their accomplishments, but based on their potential. In other words, Jesus calls disciples, but he always sees leaders. He's calling them to be with him, but he's naming. He's naming not just who they are. He sees who they are, but he sees beyond who they are to who they could be, who they should be, who they will be, and he names the leadership potential in them. Can I tell you, everyone in this room has a latent leadership capacity, and one of the things I love about God is that he calls you to follow him. He calls you to be a disciple, but he sees you as a leader. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells everyone, go and make disciples. Can I tell you, the moment you go from being a disciple to making a disciple, you're moving from discipleship to leadership. And if Jesus expects everyone to go and make disciples, then it's because Jesus sees within every person a latent capacity for leadership that he calls out of them. But for this to happen, you've got, you got, you got to hear what he names you. I love this. We see this de- designated in Peter's life. Simon, his name means listener or hearer. But he says, you're not going to be Simon. When I see you, you're going to be Peter, which means rock or little rock. This is a huge moment. Because Jesus has entered into Simon's life. Simon's a fisherman. And Jesus has demonstrated value in Simon's world. They go out all night, Luke 5 tells us, and don't catch anything. Jesus says, we gotta go back out. They're like, you gotta be kidding me. If you're a fisherman you don't catch anything, the last thing you want someone to tell you is we need to go back out. Jesus takes them to the wrong part of the pond in the wrong part of the day. They catch more fish than they've ever caught in their entire life. So he demonstrates value in their world. And notice, his, his invitation isn't to join my discipleship group. His invitation is contextualized vision into the world he's just demonstrated value and says, I just caught fish for you, more than you've ever caught in your life, follow me and I'll show you how to catch men. In other words, if you're a basketball coach, the way that you do this, you you demonstrate value in your players' lives and the call, It isn't just to come be part of my deal. The call is, hey, guys, I've been teaching how to play offense and defense on the basketball court. I want to show you how to play offense and defense with your life. So Jesus contextualizes this call, and there's a move for Simon to go from a listener to a leader because he calls him rock or pebbles, so to speak. Everyone knows Jesus is the big rock. He's the little rock. But it's a huge move because he's entered into Peter's life, but now he's going to call Peter into his way of life. Remember, we think about Jesus as a carpenter, but where Jesus lives, is probably a stonemason. So this idea of rock isn't just like a cool name. It's saying, I've entered into your life. Now I'm inviting you into my way of life. It's so significant for Peter's identity. In his epistle to the church, he'll say, we all like living stones. He's passing that on. The second invitation for some of us today it's not just to move from the crowd to the community, but it's the move from being a loyal listener to being a learning leader. This is the move for Peter. This is the move for the disciples. He's been a loyal listener. He's around the stuff, but the question is, will he step into being a learning leader? Everyone in this room, I can tell you, there is a, there is a kingdom platform waiting for you to name it there is a call that God has placed on you and Jesus names them and he trains them for it and then he's gonna send them to it. There's a kingdom platform where your latent leadership capacity could be activated so that you could be sent with the authority of Jesus to where you live, work, and play. For that to be activated in your life, you have gotta just say, I'm not just gonna be a loyal listener. I wanna dare to become a learning leader, and here's what that means, guys. It means learning to not just embrace discipleship but to embrace mission. Too many times we separate between these two things. I'm gonna put a little graph here on the screen for you to take a look at because it shows what, what, what happens when we do this. So you, you see on the, on the graph it's got high discipleship to low discipleship on the, on the vertical and high mission to low mission on the horizontal. And sometimes, especially in the world that we see today, we we see mission but not discipleship. And here's what that creates. It creates a group of people who have a cause but no clue. At best, it creates missional relevancy. Now I gotta tell you, this emerged in my, my heart probably about 12 years ago. We were in the middle of a presidential election and, and I was watching, you know, Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN, because they've got to watch, you know, all three to just have any idea what, what's happening. And so I flipping between the channels, and I'll never forget being on, on one news station, and they were interviewing the people who were protesting the first week at the Republican National Convention, and the second week at the Democratic National Convention. And they went to both sets of protesters, and they were showing them the pictures of the presidential contenders that they were protesting. And the interesting thing is at neither convention, neither of the protesters could even identify the people they were protesting. And the news broadcaster turned to the camera and said this. He said, these are people who have a cause, but no clue. And when he said that, man, the spirit of God just seared something in my heart because we live in, young people, we live in a generation today where everyone will call you to a cause. And if you're not careful, you'll be so cause happy going to all these different causes but really have no clue. People with a cause but no clue. But the reason that's happening is because they're reverting to a generation that was the exact opposite. They had a clue, but no cost. So it's discipleship without mission, which at best, you know, leads to a sense of biblical literacy. So we have the stuff and we know the stuff, but it never gets us out of the church. It defines faithfulness as a fight or fort, but never as a force in the world. If we don't have either of them, it just creates, you know, a kind of spiritual complacency or a spiritual dormancy. No cause or no clue. But here's what Jesus is calling us to. It's both mission and discipleship where you have not just a cause, but also a clue. It's cause and a clue, which isn't just biblical literacy. It's gospel fluency. It's a way to live in the world that emulates not just the words of Jesus, but the ways of Jesus and the works of Jesus and becomes the kind of person that shares the good news in whatever kind of situation you find yourself in in a way that becomes irresistible to those that you're around. Jesus calls them and he names them. He trains them for this. But the last thing he does is he sends them and he sends them with authority In other words, in John chapter 14, he says, you guys are going to do greater things than me. He passes on his authority. This person who the authorities are trying to kill, this person who the authorities are trying to say he doesn't have authority, when he has authority, first thing Jesus does is he always passes that authority to others. So he passes the authority to his disciples and he says, I'm sending you out. You guys can do greater things than me. There's a kingdom platform for you to stand on. And Jesus, he doesn't just see leaders. He sees the ultimate contribution that they were designed to make. And so as he calls them and names them, he trains them in that and he sends them. Go be who God has always dreamed you to be before the beginning of time. Ephesians chapter two, when Paul's talking about the gospel, he says, you are God's workmanship. He uses the word poema, the word that we get the word poem from. You're God's highest work of art. And he defines it created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, God's been having a dream about your life from the beginning of time. Before you came into existence, you were in God's imagination. He's been thinking about who you would be and what you would do. And he has a dream. And part of what the gospel does is it doesn't just save us from our sins, although that's really important. It also recovers the God dream. In other words, God calls you as a disciple, but he sees you as a leader and he sends you as a missionary to step in the very destiny that was in his mind before the foundations of the earth about who you would be and what you would do. There's a kingdom platform waiting for you to name, waiting for you to step on and waiting for you to become it in the world. But church, for that to happen, we got to move the finish line. Because we live in North America, where I'm just telling you, the functional great commission in the church of North America today reads something like this. Not the real commission. The functional great commission is this. Go into all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing in the name of small groups and teaching them to serve one or two weekends a month. Now, it's not that that's inaccurate, it's just inadequate. It's important to worship, it's important to get connected, it's important to serve, but a volunteer drain pipe. Will never replace a leadership pipeline. And a volunteer drain pipe looks like converts who become volunteers that serve. A leadership pipeline looks like disciples who become leaders that are sent out on mission. The future of the church is in the disciples who become leaders that are sent out on mission. In other words, God wants you to be involved, but his imagination for the way that you can do it is far in excess of what too many times we think is the finish I had a buddy who ran a half marathon. He didn't look like the guy who could run a half marathon, and we didn't think he could run a half marathon, but he trained for a half marathon, and he ran a half marathon. And I'll never forget going to Charlotte. There's about 30 of us who went to celebrate him. But when we went to Charlotte, North Carolina, there's so many people there, you couldn't get to the finish line. We had to go like a mile down the road. And so we went down the mile, we held our signs, there were 30 of us. The only problem is when he was running, he thought we were standing at the finish line. So he ran to us, thinking that he was done. He still had a mile left to go. He said that last mile about killed him, right? Because we gravitate to what we celebrate. And I wanna suggest to you, we've celebrated a functional Great Commission instead of the real Great Commission. Jesus's ministry is marked by, come and see, John chapter one. Go and make, Matthew chapter 28 but we've substituted come and see to go and make for come and see, invite and bring. Not inaccurate, it's important. Easter's coming up, we want you to invite and bring, but not the finish line. Go and make. Go into the world. Most people I'm convinced don't disciple because they don't really believe they have something of value to offer. You don't have to disciple in the church. You use the kingdom platform in which you demonstrate value to call people into the way of Jesus. Make sense? It's a bigger finish line that requires a different kind of disciple. But it's the reason that we're sitting in the room because right in the middle of a time when the Pharisees are trying to detour Jesus' ministry, Jesus makes this move. Every megachurch I've ever been around The same backstory is told about 30 people in a living room with a dream about what God could do. And when I talk to people in the megachurch, they tell me this story, and when I talk to people who were there from the beginning, you know what the thing they miss most once the church is doing all its stuff? They miss the living room with the dream and 30 people because they got the church, but they forgot to multiply the living room. Think about what happened from one living room. What if we had 30 living rooms where people were dreaming with the imagination of God again, where people were believing that God could use them, that they could become the leader that he sees them to be and stand on the kingdom platform. The future of the church isn't in the crowd. Every one of you that's here today, you represent you know, between 30 and 300, usually about 120 people like in Jesus' ministry. So a church that's gathering a couple thousand The crowd cloud is the impact of 100,000 people, and the future of the church is not in just adding one more person to the crowd. It's when the crowd gets activated to your cloud so that the impact of the church isn't the 1,000 people that are gathered, but the 100,000 people that are impacted because we're gathered. Last story, and I'm out because I'm way over time. I'm so sorry about that. But I'm a little passionate about this stuff because... I I didn't know the leadership capacity that God could call out of me. But I'll never forget this story about uh, Blair and Sherry. They, They ran, in our community in South Carolina at the time, the Barefoot Coffee Shop. And Blair, who was one of the owners, was barefoot all the time, I think he was smoking pot, all day, every day, you kind of feel that he was. But they opened up their coffee shop to us and we, we were meeting there. And we were running some different kinds of, uh, of things in, out of the coffee shop and um, we also had a group of us that were meeting in a house and just decided, you know what, we're, we're gonna take ownership for our neighborhood, for our community and we wanna be the missional presence in that community. And so we're meeting and we're trying to figure out how to be gospel presence, gospel fluent, where we live, where we can play and it was Christmas time and so we just all decided to get together and every family put in some money and then we divided it up into three different groups and we said, all right, we're gonna split the money and you guys go out tonight and you just figure out how you're gonna find someone to bless. But pray before you do it. And so I had our little group and we were praying and as we were praying, God brought to mind um, <clears throat> Blair and Shelley, And some of the group said, I think it's their one year anniversary. And so we said, well, maybe what we could do with our money is we could go get them a nice gift card and um, a, a nice gift and go over there and, and just kind of bless them. And so we went and did that and we showed up at the coffee shop and they were walking out right as we were walking in. And as they were, they were walking out, we, we said, hey, guys, we just want to thank you so much. You've been like, you've given us your coffee shop to do meetings in and different things like that. We're so thankful. And here, I know it's your, your anniversary, here's a gift. And we just kind of blessed them. And as we're blessing them, Sherry just starts crying. And she goes on to tell her story and she says something that that is seared into my heart that I'll I'll never forget. She said, years ago when when I kind of chose to go into a different lifestyle, I left the church, I stopped coming to church. And with tears in her eyes she said, but I never expected my church to come after me. Can I tell you, the world is not waiting to come to church but they are waiting for a church that will come to them. And that means becoming disciples who become leaders that are sent out, in your language, here's the invitation, in your language, it's what Gary talks about. It's about being a 5G disciple, not a 4G disciple. 4G disciple, functional great commission. 5G disciple, it's a go and make, disciple who becomes a leader that is sent out on mission. And that's what you guys have said you want to be. So I'm calling you to it today. I'm calling you from the crowd to the community. I'm calling you from being a loyal listener to be a learning leader. And I'm calling you from four G's to five G's this morning. Because we live in a world where everyone's angry and everyone's exhausted and everyone's anxious. And what they need to see is a church who is forming disciples that become leaders, that are sent out on mission, that are demonstrating value in their world and calling them to a new way of life. And that kind of church, that kind of church, doesn't matter how big it is, it will always have a future. It will always have a future. So I'm calling you to your future today, church. Will you step into it? Father, thank you so much for your kindness, and goodness and grace toward us. I'm flabbergasted, Lord, that all the things that you could do without us, you choose to do in us and through us, that you give us an invitation to partner in your grace, and that as we do, we become who you dreamed us to be. So God, let us not be settled Let us not settle for an ordinary life when you are calling out the extraordinary in us. We love you, Lord, in your name.